Welcome to Building the Future. I'm your host, Kevin Horick. You can check out new episodes of the show every Tuesday and Thursday at 2 p.m. If you missed an episode or want to get more information about the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Giovanni Vigna. He's a professor at UCSB and CTO at Lastline. Giovanni, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. I think what what you do and have done kind of in your past is is very much relevant to kind of the space and, and time that we're in right now. But maybe before we kind of get into that, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Right. So, uh, of course, uh, as many might have guessed from my name, I'm Italian. I was sure. born and raised in Italy. Uh, I moved uh, in 97 to UC Santa Barbara for a brief postdoc. Okay. Uh, 20 years later, I'm still there. <laughs> Obviously, uh, I like the endless uh, spring and beautiful uh, sea that we have here. So sure. I decided to stay um, as a stable uh, part of the Department of Computer Science. Um, my, uh, I have a sort of like a weird upbringing. My PhD is actually in electronic engineering, but I've always, be, I've always been interested in security, uh, ranging from the very early um, virus analysis, very early intrusion detection systems. And so I came to Santa Barbara actually to do this, to do network intrusion detection when it was a cool research topic 20 years ago. Sure. Nowadays, it's considered, it's considered fundamentally uh, a solved problem, uh, largely. But I've been, you know, my field in, in research is security, and it, it has been security uh, this whole time. Sure. So was there like a defining moment that you can remember that, that got you kind of passionate about that field or, or just kind of, kind of grew naturally as kind of the internet came to be and you, you were kind of just, you know, online and, and dealing with computers? No, absolutely. I, I can tell you exactly the moment. Sure. Uh, I was at home. I was editing uh, .com, not, not, not a domain, but a .com object is the version of uh, Windows executable that was before the exe format. And I, I was... I, I, there was no documentation in Italy on that stuff. I kind of figure out how the control flow, what would happen, and I modify manually the binary code in the file to jump to a routine that I injected in the binary and jump back to the beginning, sort of to test how viruses actually attach themselves to this file. And the first time it worked, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. That's awesome, this, man. This is, that is too much fun and the fun part is that at that time there was no documentation especially in italy i remember going to the early library in milan and finding a uh, english manual with the you know all the uh, um, documentation of the operating system interrupts and i was like this is a treasure now you go on, on google and you find everything you want at that time those moments are tattooed in my brain that's great, man. Yeah, I, I love, I, I, it sounds like we were similar in that way where I love almost just like when you have some, some sort of obstacle, it's usually online or something. And I think the best example is just like, I, I live in Canada, for example, and there's certain things that you can't get in Canada, just like streaming services or whatnot. And, you know, they're obviously trying to 
I know now nowadays it's like VPNs and it's it's pretty easy to get most things, but years ago it wasn't. And so just like working around something to get, you know, to get something working, to me it's that like rush, right? And you just love that stuff, or at least I, it yeah, sounds like absolutely. we're similar to that, right? And it's just like the yeah. and especially the first time something works, you're just like, oh my God, this is amazing. So I, I totally, yeah, totally yeah. get that. So, yeah, also, also, I think that digital security in general has this sort of catastrophic uh, uh, aspect to it that either it doesn't work at all or suddenly works great. Sure. So that, that moment where that disruption happens is, is a huge high. Sure. No, that, that's awesome, man. So what exactly is Last Line and what do you guys kind of do or what do you do there at Last Line? Okay, so... Uh, I am the co-founder uh, and CTO at Lastline. So I started Lastline with two other researchers, Christopher Krugel and Engin Kirda. Christopher is also a professor at UC Santa Barbara. Engin is a professor at Northeastern University in Boston. And uh, so w what we have done in our research in past years is to really develop new analysis techniques to uh, identify malware that actively resists being analyzed you know somebody calls a, a adversarial malware or evasive malware but the basic idea is that malware has, has reached a point where the first thing the malware does is like hey am i being analyzed oh 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 i am okay then i'm gonna be all cool about this right and and so you cannot really see the behaviors that typically you can use to identify a program uh, as malicious so this is a very hard problem sure. from the scientific point of view. And so we were fascinated by this. We started working on these techniques and we created portals that on the, at the university where people could submit, you know, executable or web pages to us. We would analyze them automatically using our tools and give them information. And people loved it. Not only was it free, but it was actually working very well. Interesting. And so people start asking, hey, you know, productize this and like no you know we have we have to get tenure and we have busy with research sure. but uh, eventually the pressure was too much and so we decided hey you know let's make tabula rasa let's start from scratch and with everything that we have learned by running these tools they are called anubis and webaway by running this tool we have learned so much if we had to begin from zero what would we do and last line is the product that is the result of this endeavor and what we do, fundamentally, sorry for the long-winded answer, no, no, it's but good, fundamentally like what it. we do, yeah, fundamentally what we do, we sit on the network, imagine we sniff the traffic, and we either identify evidence of malware talking to their command and control, so calling home, mm -hmm. or if we observe a download or some JavaScript passing by on the wire, we can grab it, send it to an analysis system that sort of like ex pretends to execute him in a host, and then extract uh, sort of like a score from zero to 100, where 100 is super bad, zero is super benign, and then all this information is put together and presented to the user. So you open our product interface, and it tells you these five, these five hosts in your network are you know, infected with WannaCry, this is why we're absolutely sure that this is the case, and this is how they all relate to each other, and this is all the activity that they had. Okay, interesting. And you have some huge brands using you guys already, but I'm curious to know, okay, so 
you're you're sitting you have your software sitting on the network and it's watching traffic like you just said what happens yep. when it detects something do does it or something get a notification or or, or walk me through that process yeah so, so there there are different configurations possible let's say that in the most non-obtrusive configure non-intrusive configuration we are just passive observers okay. so we just watch what happens in your network we're not going to prevent anything from really going going by it is the the most sort of like non-intrusive we detect something we can send an email we can send a text message to the to the it person and say hey fundamentally that machine is a hundred percent compromised just go there with whatever you know uh, firepower you have re-image the machine do something about it cut it off the network it's up to you sure of I course on top of this we can have yeah, different level of reaction. That could be blocking the connection. It could be, uh, for example, going to a firewall. We have integration with various firewalls that we can say block this from continuing. Um, we can send events to what we call CM, that is aggregators of events. There are many things that you can do on top of this. Of course, the best thing is to prevent the thing from happening. And for example, with email, we can take away the attachment and say, uh-uh, this Excel file is actually full of malicious stuff and we're not going to get it through. Okay, so you even just block, yeah, because you just block things before it even gets to the user. Because I think the average person just assumes that everything's fine, right? And I don't mean that in a negative way. It's just people just almost, it's it's one of those things like people don't think it's going to happen to them, right? And, and Exactly. And, exactly. and malware is getting really, really smart that a lot of times you don't even know you have it for for days, months, sometimes even years. At least in my experience, I've found some people just don't know until you know it's been years, and then they're like, "Why is my computer so buggy or glitchy?" Or and you're like, "Oh, you have tons of you know, adware, yes. and malware, and stuff like that." So, so I, I totally... absolutely. I mean, all, all, yeah. No, Sorry, keep go going. Sorry, hey. go ahead. No, I mean this software really um, uh, take it, takes advantage of exactly this kind of attitude, and and that's why, for example, ransomware is so effective because people don't back up because they say, hey, well, it's not going to happen to me. I know I don't care. I don't have anything to hide. And then suddenly ransomware comes, encrypts all their kids' pictures. And you're like, yeah, uh, well, I, I want my kids' pictures. Well, it's $300. Sure. And, and they end up and they have to pay. So this attitude that a security incident will not happen is just the wrong attitude. So... Along those lines in kind of the ransomware stuff, and, and there's been kind of a, a bunch of it lately in the, in the media, what's your kind oh, yeah. of take on that? Because, like, I kind of have mixed feelings about about it, to be honest with you, and, and some people blame the corporation that created the, you know, the software, the hardware, both, and then there's other people that are kind of saying, you know what, like, they told you, they warned you, it's been a number of years now, you know, you can't expect somebody to to support something that's decades old. And the analogy that I like to use in an argument when I'm trying to defend the position of you need to update is, you know, like obviously when you bought a VHS player and then DVD came out, you can't play your DVDs in your VHS player and you can't play your VHSs in your DVD player. Like technology just moves on and you need to upgrade, right? And the internet, Absolutely. at least in my opinion, seems to be one of, if not the only medium where people expect it to be 
updated for infinity and you know their oldest stuff should work till the you know until they decide to update where any other thing in the physical world doesn't play like that and so i'm curious to know your thoughts on that kind of whole kind of topic you know where do you kind of see it playing in the actual security space like you guys do yeah that's that's a great question and and Sincerely, in this particular case, and I, I mean, I, we don't have a last line position on this. Sure. Uh, I can tell you me, my personal position on this is that uh, I, I don't think that Microsoft is to blame for this. Sure. Sincerely, they even put up a patch for that problem. Yeah, People I agree just with you. All the patch. And so th there are two aspects. There are the users of the operating system that don't want to make the effort or they decide to not invest resources in upgrading to new platforms. And I understand if you're using Windows 7, you don't have to have the latest and greatest, but Windows XP, come on, that, that, that's a pretty, people have been warned and rewarned and warned again that they need to update and they didn't. And also they didn't want to invest in, um, uh, in putting in the, the sort of uh, the money to pay for the support co uh, contract to receive the security patches even after the, um, the, the operating system became obsolete. On the other hand, the old, and I think that this is even worse, these are there are some manufacturers, uh, for example, of medical equipment that use Windows XP as their embedded system, quote unquote, totally. and do not care absolutely about the security of their system. And there are horror stories. If you look at Kevin Fu, is, is a professor uh, that specializes in analyzing medical devices and their security. He has horror stories about, you know, uh, drips that can be secure shell into uh, and other ridiculous things um, that are absolutely uh, obscene from a security point of view. Because here we're talking about affecting the livelihood of human beings. I mean, they could die if the drip stops or goes crazy. So I think that, uh, that we have to understand that everything that is computer operated is a node of the internet. You might think it's not the, a node on the internet, but your Fitbit is, your you know, hard monitor is, your x-ray machine, because you cannot design this sort of equipment thinking that will never be on a public network, because they will. You know, and, and, and I think it's negligent from the manufacturing point of view to put out, I don't know, uh, a, a, a morphine drip uh, with Windows XP without any patches, without any protection. So this is, I think, the responsibility stays in people that didn't want to invest in upgrading and manufacturer that ship um, the devices with vulnerable code on it. Sure. No, I 100% I agree with you. And to be fair, I, I agree that it's not, at least in my opinion, that it's not Microsoft's fault. It's like they gave everybody more than enough time to do this. And and so it's kind of like, well, sorry, like it's it's your own fault, right? Like I just, yeah, it, yeah so I, I get it. Um, so I'm curious then, is if somebody is running an older version of something, is there anything that you guys at last line can do or is it very much like 
you need to patch XP and there's not really much you guys can do? Or can you do a little bit? Or is it just too old and outdated to do anything? Well, I mean, what Lastland can contribute is to give a very early warning okay. on these, you know, attacks against these obsolete platforms. Actually, our, our, the, the part that does the computer analysis, we call it Sandbox, in our case, is able to handle Windows XP, Windows 7, Windows 10. So it covers all these different, you know, platforms because they are out there. Sure. What I would say is, like, if you have Windows XP, you know, make sure that your firewalling works well and you have open only ports that you absolutely need in order to deliver the service they're delivering. Sure. Most of the time, that the problem is not, is not only in the operating system be unpatched, it's also been unpatched and insanely open. Sure. So that is the problem. The composite, the perfect storm is having a, an obsolete vulnerable software, but also have it network its network being completely open to anybody i mean there are things that can be done that would completely prevent this from happening no that that makes a lot of sense i i think that's that's that that makes the most sense to me so you kind of have um an enterprise version you have an analysis program and then um a detonator kind of thing so what exactly how do those three products kind of play together and and how do they kind of work for you guys at last line yeah so uh, this is um I, I would say imagine this is um three configurations of the sort of same basic capability so what what do we do we analyze stuff we analyze it and we give you sort of view on things that you would otherwise not see Okay. So in the case of enterprise, our visibility is into your network traffic and all the artifacts, program, documents, and things that are exchanged on your network. So it's the, if you want, is the most comprehensive uh, uh, microscope that you put on your network. It will look at all sorts of events from email to HTTP connections to file transfer and put this all together. For some people, uh, you know, some people came to us and say, hey, I don't need that. I just wanted you guys to become like an oracle. So I come to you, I give you a file, and you tell me, this is good, this is bad. This is bad, and it does all these different things. So this thing is sort of what we call the analyst. So it's only the, ana the program analysis part of our solution that we, some people use separately. Mostly, you know, for example, analysts in a bank. Oh, somebody come to them with an executable. Hey, we saw, you know, some machines in this other branch being attacked by this. What does this program do? They put it into last line analyst. We unravel this malware. We extract all the behavior, all the registry key, and they're able to say, oh, look, if you ever find something that touches these registry keys, goes and talk to these IP addresses, you know it's bad stuff. Gotcha. It's called indicators of compromise. Got you. So but now, suppose you want to do, no. suppose you want to do this at scale for thousands and thousands, then you need detonator. Gotcha. Detonator is fundamentally, you know, you can do a data center that just answer the same question for millions of files every day. Got you. Okay. That, that was going to be my next question to you. But 
So you guys recently won a couple awards at the IT World Awards. What exactly were those for? So, uh, good question. Well, I mean, it's like a most innovative, um, I think I, I have to remember, I, I don't have it in front of me, but it was about innovation and um, uh, sort of like having an effective solution. And in and, and this, I want you know, to go back uh, to the fact that three of the founders are three professors that are active, very active in the, uh, in the research world is that I think that only companies in the security field that have in their DNA uh, academia and research can keep up with a threat that is in continuous evolution. So I, you know, my internal mantra or last internal mantra is, you know, innovate to protect. And I really believe in that. I think that, you know, you cannot just stop and say, oh, I found a solution to this problem because we're not, you know, dealing with a physical phenomenon, refraction or, you know, electromagnetic waves. We're dealing with another human being, a bad guy somewhere who's, you know, looking at us and say, mm, they caught me again. Mm, I'm going to find a way to get around that or come out with a completely new class of attacks that you've never seen. And this is where being ready to adapt and evolve uh, following the threat model, the threat landscape is absolutely important. Sure. No, I 100% agree. It's kind of like a cat and mouse game, right? Like you're always kind yeah. of chasing and yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that's really cool. So I'm curious, you are, you know, you, you run a bunch of kind of groups and, you know, you're, you're a program chair and you, you run a kind of hacking team. Walk me through some of those things that you're kind of involved in that kind of keep you active and, you know, up on top of all this stuff. Of course. Well, first of all, there is, uh, uh, as I was saying, the academic um, life. My, I, have a, I co-direct uh, the security lab at UCSB with Christopher Krugel, also co-founder of Last Line, as I told before. Sure. And we have a very large group of PhD students that uh, do research on a number of topics from binary analysis, vulnerability analysis, IoT security, uh, privacy in social networks, you name it. We were very active in, in many fields. And, you know, and as every security group, we develop software, we make it open source, but also we publish papers that show what's new, what are the new ideas that, that come out. The, the, the hacking team started because in 2003, we decided to participate uh, in the DEFCON Capture the Flag. Sure. And to, it's sort of like the world championship of hacking. That's awesome. And yeah, and then we participated in 2004, and then in 2005 uh, with the team Shellfish, we actually won the competition. Oh, congrats, man. That's and, great. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's 12 years ago now. But, sure, it's um, still cool, though. Every, but almost, yeah, yeah, it's very cool. It's very cool. You get that black badge that you can go back to DEFCON without having to pay for the rest of your life. It's very nice. <laughs> um, and, and, but we have been going back to the DEFCON Capture the Flag competition for many years following. And actually, I think we are the, uh, the, the team that participated in most Defcon CTFs uh, in the world. That's awesome. And what what we are as a as a as a shellfish hacking team are a group of you know students of mine that then became other professor, then got other students, and 
it's a very uh, open and dynamic group, and we just love hacking together. We we love to participate in this hacking competition. Everything, of course, is uh, uh, very legal and very safe because sure. I'm responsible as a professor. Sure. <laughs> um, but it's it, it's super it's super fun. It's very enthralling when you know we were talking about the high of making something work. That's the same thing when you hack into something, you finally find the solution. It's awesome. And one thing that we have been involved in that is very interesting, we have been one of the seven teams that qualified uh, last year for the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge, which was the first capture the frag competition all based on artificial intelligence. So there were like seven, seven teams put together a system that is completely autonomous, no human in the loop. And these systems have to get a binary, a program, find the vulnerability, exploit the vulnerability, and patch the binary to protect against the exploit. And so, yeah, and so just because we qualified, DARPA graciously gave us a three quarter of a million in cash, which was very nice. Sure. Um, and then, we participated in the competition in August, right before DEFCON, and we placed third. Okay. And so we want another three quarters of a million in cash. And so now our Shellfish group is very well funded. We we sure. have you know very good sushi parties. Sure, that's awesome, man. Congrats. That's 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 quite an accomplishment to do that, right? And it's it's quite it challenging. Is, it is very, it is very challenging. You know why? Because. I think that people don't realize that uh, in this, you know, hacking vulnerability analysis, the the human aspect is enormous. I know amazing hackers that can look at a program, the binary code of a program, and say, okay, that's where the problem is. And it would take me, you know, hours to get to the same level. But these guys, you know, train and do that, and they're uh, also they're much younger, <laughs> and, uh-huh. and they can get there so fast, and they make all the difference in the world. This CGC competition is like, uh-uh, you cannot have the super good hacker. You have to write a program that is able to do that. And so from that point of view, you know, it's sort of like how you codify the ability of a hacker of finding a vulnerability and exploiting it. And it's, I think it's, it was the first step in a, in a long new direction in research in autonomous you know, computing. Sure. And- this kind of leads me into my next question. Um, obviously, at least in my opinion, and it seems to be kind of where things are going, that as more and more things come online and the Internet of Things and just as we potentially go to self-driving cars instead of driving ourselves around, that becoming kind of a good hacker or white hat hacker is only going to become more in demand than it currently is. And it's already, at least in my opinion, very much in demand. But I, I think it's going to be almost like one of the most, if not the most popular or most needed kind of job. Because, you know, if, if somebody can write code or somebody's going to be able to get around that code, right, at the end of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know what's funny? That even in the academic world, if you there are some studies, you know, this year, what were the most sought after positions in academia for new professors? Number one was security. Second one was machine learning and sure. data science. I mean, those are the two, you know, huge topic in uh, in um, sort of like in the job market in academia, but in the job market 
in general. I mean, I cannot produce enough master undergrad and PhD student in security because they're, they're, the competition, I mean, among companies to hire these people is insane. Sure. I mean, they, they get out of, you know, the program and they're already making way more money than I do. I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe I am in the wrong you know, line of work. <laughs> so I'm curious then, people that want to get into the security field, and obviously you guys run a really good program at University of California, Santa Barbara, but what if people can't necessarily go to your campus and, ta and take your program? What should they look for in a program, maybe in their, in their local geographical region? Well, that's a great question. And so one thing that I often, often say, I mean, security is finding problems in other people's code. So one thing that you fundamentally have to understand is coding. Okay. The only amazingly good security person is somebody who is able to code either to find problems in other people's code or to compose tools together to achieve whatever they need to do. And nowadays, you know, the, the, the language du jour is uh, Python. If you know Python and you know it well, with very little effort, you can build amazing security solution or a security scanner, or you can use the API of Mechanical Turk and, you know, Google Drive to do some amazing combination of stuff. And, and this is why it is important to first understand that you need to program well. Then the second part, you need to know operating system and networks. Those are two things that you have to understand because otherwise you don't understand the threat, you don't understand what can possibly happen. And only on that point, once you know how to code, how an operating system works, and how networks work, you're ready to look at first basic security training and then advanced security training. I, I feel that uh, many people come to me and say, I don't know anything, I wanna become a hacker. It's sure. like, that, that, that doesn't work, unfortunately, it's sort of like somebody going to a dojo and say, hey, how, how do I get blue belt right away? Sure. Like, well, you, you don't. You, you get the white belt and then the yellow belt and then the orange belt and then the green belt and then you get the blue belt. But, but I so, think that's really good advice, right, in, in itself because you're right. It, it, it's kind of a, a for, for lack of a better term, it's kind of trendy right now to either kind of be good or bad in the in the hacking space, right? And And so... You, you, to your point, I, I think that's really good advice because you could download software that does things that are written by other people, but you don't really understand. And, and that's even just outside of the security space. There's lots of software that people use on a daily basis that somebody else wrote that they just kind of click the buttons in the interface and they have no exactly. idea what's really happening. But yeah, I, I'm curious, you, you mentioned a programming language and I get asked this all the time. What do you, what programming language do you recommend people learn if they want to get into the security space? Or does it not really matter? You just need to understand how to program. Well, I mean, it's a, you know, I was mentioning Python as a scripting language is definitely the best language that one can learn nowadays to be able to, you know, enable his idea to become systems and to function in the real world. There is a ton of support for all, for, for all sorts of things, but it will, you know, it will come the day where if you're truly embedded in security that you want to 
develop something that needs to be developed in C or Java. So I would start with Python, but okay. one has to understand how programs work in general, the concept of memory organization, how object orientation works, uh, down to you know how compilers actually end up taking source code and transform them in, in binary code. But that's an advantage. If I, you know, I would say a first step to fall in love with programming, because I think that if you start programming and you like it, eventually you will fall in love with it. Sure. Uh, Python is a good start because it's simple enough, but it's also very effective. Sure. So uh, I'm also curious, you, what's your daily operating system that you like to go to? Is it Linux? Is it Mac? Is it Windows? Do you not really care which one you use? I'm, I'm just kind of I, I'm actually, a, yeah. I, I'm a I'm a dual. I mean, uh, I I always have uh, I have a Mac, okay. and I use Mac OS X for sort of like mail, calendar, sure. sort of browsing. But all my development work is on a VM with Linux. Linux. I you know I do yeah I use I use Ubuntu Linux for fundamentally everything that is uh, security related. Sure, and I to be honest, I kind of figured that was going to be your setup, but I but I was curious, and and so for people that don't really understand why you'd pick that configuration, why is Linux kind of so important in the in the security space, or just even kind of in the developer space? Well, I mean, I, I think that um, Linux has um, a, a more, I would say, predictable behavior. Okay. Um, in terms of, you know, network capabilities and things like that. Um, but also has, uh, it is more built to be uh, used remotely without a user interface. And all I say now is, you know, made not true, but, you know, the latest development in Windows. At this point, I think Windows and Linux in terms of capabilities are fundamentally the same. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of security people grew up with Linux, and so now they're used to that way of doing things. And also, Ubuntu is free, and you don't have to pay for it. You don't have, you know, weird licenses and things that you have to keep up. And so from that point of view, is a, a better, more open platform. Sure. And, and so for people that are kind of looking to get into the space again, how important is kind of learning the terminal? I've heard that kind of come come up a few times uh -huh. in, in these talks. Is it still very important, or is it kind of you can get away with not really learning it? No, it's super important. Okay, that's what I, I kind of figured. The ter yeah, and the terminal is back with a vengeance because sure. now you know the, the the ability of scripting stuff or performing things on large scale, uh, being able to you know, have an idea and then throw it in the cloud and being able to use all kinds of scripting techniques uh, to manage, you know, possibly for a few minutes, few hundreds hosts and then shut them down. All this is not some, something that you can do uh, with a graphic user interface. Being able to script stuff and use the terminal is a fundamental skill. Sure. I No, I 100% I agree with you. And the thing that I find like I, I use it, but I, I don't consider myself like a, a, an advanced user. I, I know enough to get around and do some things and I'm more on the design side anyway, but I, I do understand. But the thing that I find always fascinating to me and I've worked with guys that really know the terminal 
and they can do anything faster than mm-hmm. you, than than you could ever do in a GUI. Like I used to work with a guy. He literally just had like twelve terminal windows, and he ran a Dvorak keyboard on this like optimized programming keyboard that where his thumbs were the space bar or but they were yeah, oh, yeah. sorry his index fingers were the space bar and like it ran Dvorak and so you had no idea how to use that thing but man could that guy just like fly in the terminal and he could do anything like Not from going. coding to git to you know deployment to running scripts and, and it was just and and so I I why I wanted to bring it up is because I think to your point, it's coming back with a vengeance, but I think a lot of people, especially sometimes developers that maybe want to get into the security space, aren't spending time learning the terminal kind of properly, and I think it's super important. Yeah, absolutely. I, you cannot be more uh, more right. Uh, I think that, um, I mean, and, and user interfaces have their place. I mean, sure. they're, they're great, show graph and data, but uh, for me, there is nothing like the control and repeatability. So you, you, you can script stuff, you can set up ta- cron jobs that run at specific times, you can, you can do so much more. So that's a, that's a very, very important tool. No, I, I 100% agree. So I'm kind of curious, you're obviously a professor and you're, you're doing a startup. Um, how do you kind of balance working full-time and teaching, which by full-time, I, I get that, you know, you, you, you don't work nine to five, right? Like you might teach <laughs> nine to five, but you have stuff that you have, you're involved in a bunch of extracurricular stuff. You know, you're, you're running yeah. these events and you're, you're doing these groups and these hackathons and all this stuff. Plus you're running a company. How do you kind of manage all that and, and kind of what have you found that's kind of worked for you and, you know, hasn't really worked for you when you're trying to balance this kind of startup with, uh, or company life with kind of, you know, running an academic life. That, that's, uh, you've been talking to my wife, obviously. <laughs> so, uh, this, I think it's a, it's a, it's a balancing act, uh, as you said. Um, the, the good thing is that, um, the, the, the things that I see in the company world, the real world, oftentimes are a suggestion for great research ideas. Ah, very and vice versa. Cool. And vice versa, things that I see in the research world, I might like, oh my God, I wonder if this would work, you know, in an in, in a, in a industrial setting. Sure. So there are there two very different worlds. You know, one, it is driven by, by what's novel. I mean, in the academia, they don't care if it scales to the internet or if it can be user-friendly. They just want the new algorithm goes faster, better, more effective. And oftentimes cannot really be applied to the real world because it wouldn't scale or it wouldn't be fast enough. But it's interesting nonetheless. Sure. By the same token, in, in the real world, you you find, you know, problems that, you know, I, I give you one example. I was talking to somebody. Say, oh, we have to manage all these, you know, all these different machines, and you know, sometimes they're all configured exactly the same. So for us, you know, we we notice that something is wrong with that because they all behave the same. And then this guy is an anomaly, and it's like, wow, it would be interesting if we can sort of create like a mapping of the kernel 
memory layout of all these computers that's supposed to be the same, and we use some kind of graph algorithm to compare them and find out which has been infected and which not. And we did, you know, and we had a, we had a system called Black Sheep that does exactly this. And this is something that, you know, talking to somebody became an interesting research problem. Um, but, but, you know, it takes a toll. Being, you know, leading a hacking team to uh, uh, being an academic and also being in the industry as CTO of a company, let's say that there is not a lot of free time. <laughs> sure. No, I, but, I, and I love that honest answer, right? It's, but, but I also love how you use kind of both of them to feed the other one because I think that also keeps it interesting and fresh. Absolutely. And, and to your point, I think it's interesting how obviously a lot of the stuff that you're researching is probably on the very cutting edge that you can kind of move into the product. And then when you, when somebody comes to you and says, yeah, I have this problem, you can move it into the research side and kind of explore that, right. And see how that plays out. That's, that's really cool, man. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's fun stuff. I, I, I tell you, especially security. I mean, it goes back to having that, you know, the problem you're trying to solve, is a bad guy somewhere, you know, sure. million, not millions, but me, uh, thousands of, of miles away. That keeps it fresh. I mean, new problems come out. I mean, I put, you were mentioning uh, the Internet of Things. I mean, that's something that we're looking at, understanding how, you know, all these objects that per se are just yet another host on the Internet, but now they're talking to each other, they're interacting with the physical world. It, it, it's very exciting, very exciting time. Sure. So I'm kind of curious, where do you kind of see the future of kind of security going? Or is it kind of the unknown still a little bit? Like, how do you, I guess, kind of stay on top of the hackers and, and yeah. kind of where, where do you see this all kind of going? Uh, very, very good question. Um, I, I think that we, there are going to be two fundamental trends. One is a continuous and more ubiquitous cloudification of everything. We, uh, I think, will stop having our own platforms and we're fundamentally going to have just windows or browsers. So like uh, little, you know, viewpoints on whatever happened in our personal cloud up somewhere. Uh, this is an obvious uh, evolution that also has security implications. Um, on the one end, it becomes more, it becomes easier to protect people because if I am in control of your operating system and I update it every 15 minutes, it's a lot harder to break into it. Sure. Uh, and so, but also it, it will become um, more data will be out there. And the guy who are, the guys who are now targeting your computer, your platform will start pointing their weapons towards the cloud itself. Gotcha. And, you know, the, imagine finding one flaw on Dropbox and being able to, you know, access every Dropbox folder. Now, sure. the, the stakes are up. I mean, it's going to be incredibly hard to find these bugs. But once you find them, we're talking about, you know, catastrophic data leaks and things like that. So I think that that's one of the trends. And, and that's why, for example, our you know, our solution also integrates with cloud services. So gotcha. you can have, you know, you know, email in the cloud. Uh, we, we, we'll, we'll analyze your email anyway. Don't worry. I mean, we're going to we're going to uh, uh, integrate with those 
you know, platform. We, we do integrate with those platforms as well. The other thing is um, sort of like uh, I think there's going to be um, a lot of merging between and what we saw as the opportunistic cybercrime, so sort of the financial, uh, stealing your data, cloning your credit card, a little bit of ransomware, uh, and, and this will merge with sort of like nation-state attacks. Okay. And we already saw something where, for example, uh, uh, there was an article in the New York Times that was describing how the Russian intelligence went to a cyber criminal who had a botnet and say, hey, you have a few hundred thousand bots around the world. Can you look for these keywords for us? And suddenly something that was, you know, a botnet, a financial steal your money, sell it on the dark web type of thing became uh, actually an intelligence tool for a national state. And I think we will see more of this to the point that it will be impossible to say, oh, I, you know, I don't care about, you know, ransomware or uh, adware. I only care about the nation state stuff. Well, guess what? The nation state now is piggybacking on this very, you know, if you want run of the mill malware. And so you need a platform or protection mechanisms that are able to cover all the spectrum. Sure. No, that, that's actually really fascinating. So I'm curious, though. Does, does voice commands to like something like Home or Amazon Echo, um, does it make things more complicated for you? Does it stay the same? Is it different? I, I, think, it's, I think it's different. Um, I mean, imagine we, would, we always talk about this new IoT thing. Imagine that you have um, a, a video um, sort of like a in front of your door, a video bell, yeah. whatever that, you know, so and suppose that it goes automatically when you press a button and suddenly from the, from the, from the door, you can shout Alexa, open the door and suddenly the door opens. So people don't, we're not used at understanding what are the interaction between these different components in the cyber physical world. We understand Zigbee. We understand TCP IP, these protocols that are used from, by these devices to interact with each other, but that suddenly you have that if you raise the temperature in this room, this light would go off and suddenly there is a sensor that will do something else. There could be unintended uh, interactions and we're not very good yet at understanding the implication of these things. Interesting, that's, yeah, I kind of, I kind of figured that, that you'd kind of go that direction because you're right, like it's, it's so new, right? Like this stuff's only, a year, yeah, a couple years like, old. I, I'll give you an example. Have you ever heard about uh, ultrasonic tracking? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, but you know how few people heard about that? Sure. So and what is it know. for people that, that don't know? So, so fundamentally, it is a way to um, you, you install something on your cell phone that is an ad framework. You, you, don't, you, you install it as part of an application. And this application actually on your phone is listening in the sort of like um, uh, high, very high frequency mm -hmm. that you cannot hear. I mean, maybe a dog can hear it. Sure. And suddenly you're, you know, you're in front of a website or in front of a TV and that website start playing some ultrasound beacon that is captured by your phone. So I know who is in front of this web page 
this very moment. I know who is in front of this TV station listening to this ad in this particular moment. It's a way to track people using ultrasound that we are completely unaware of and can be a violation of privacy. Sure. No, that's that's quite fascinating. But sadly, we're out of time. So maybe let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and Last Line. Yes, of course. They can go to our website, www.lastline.com, or um, they can just, you know, Google Last Line and Google my name, and they will be on their way to finding a lot of information. They can also Google shellfish with a PH, so shell, P-H-I-S-H. That's our, um, uh, our sort of hacking team, and there is a lot on the internet about that. So always Google it. It's a great starting point. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and look forward to keeping in touch with you, and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. Uh, it was a really a fun conversation. Thanks, man. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Okay, bye. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks for listening. The music for the show is done by Electric Mantra. You can check them out at electricmantra.com and keep them in the future.